When I was in my first semester of seminary, the Episcopal priest, hospital chaplain, and author, Chuck Meyer, died in a car collision while on the way to Houston. Uh, some here may remember him. Some may have read his books. He was popular at the time, especially within the Episcopal Church and in the Diocese of Texas, you know, out on that Linton program circuit. Uh, I didn't know him, but I did hear him speak a few times when I was a member of St. David's in Austin. And at the time of his death, I happened to be taking uh, the pastoral introduction to pastoral care class uh, with the professor, Will Spong, who was a friend of Chuck Myers. And though he was grieving, Will used that very sad incident to talk about God and what God and the will of God in the face of such terrible things happening. He started the class with the blunt statement. Chuck Meyer died because he was traveling 70 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour in a car that hit another car going 70 miles an hour. That's why Chuck died. Will did not believe such death served a higher purpose or taught anyone a lesson. They just were. He didn't believe in using one of our go-to phrases to make sense of the senseless, such as, it is part of God's plan. Will believed that God is God and that we are creatures of God who do not have the mind of God. Now, in face with senseless deaths or these sorrow other sorrowful circumstances, we, we may feel like we have to say something. I mean, I feel that. Uh, to say it is part of God's plan is to somehow acknowledge that what has occurred is beyond our comprehension. And it points toward our struggle to find or make meaning out of what happened. To say it is part of God's plan is to say in some way that God willed it to occur, or in the least, allowed it to happen. Now these days we may wonder what God is up to in the world and what God's will is for our lives and for the life of the world. We can look around and wonder whether it is God's will that there's a war going on in Ukraine in which thousands of people have died and millions have been left homeless. This is not to mention other conflicts in the world such as that in Syria and Yemen that also have killed thousands and made refugees of millions of people. And not only that, we're at the end, we hope, of a two-year pandemic in which lives have been disrupted and hundreds of thousands of people have died. And we have our own personal crises, whether it's family conflict, sickness, uh, or even death. You know, so how does God figure into all of it? You know, what is God's will for our lives? Now, when it comes to understanding God's will, we can, first of all, as we should, turn to the Bible. You know, violence and accidents were part of Jesus' world just as they are part of ours. Uh, today in the reading from the Gospel according to Luke, Jesus has been teaching the crowds and someone mentions or brings up the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And then Jesus mentions 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. You know, the first incident refers to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, who shows up later, as we know in the Gospel. Uh, the governor of Judea having killed some pilgrims from Galilee when they are in the temple or at the temple offering their sacrifices there. Uh, the second incident refers to a tower probably in the city wall which was reported to have fallen and killed 18 people. You know, the first case is an act of political violence. Pilate represented an occupying power who had Jews from Galilee killed. Uh, the second case is that of a senseless accident which resulted in death. And Jesus asks, were the Galileans who suffered worse sinners than all other Galileans? Were the ones crushed by the tower worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? 
And by saying that, Jesus accepts the widely held belief of the time that suffering was a consequence of sin. Sometimes, even in our own day, it may be, but not necessarily. Uh, The point Jesus is trying to make is not directly about God's will. Jesus makes or takes these events and uses them to reflect on the need for repentance in order to live into the new age that he introduces. So those in the crowd who heard Jesus, if they did not repent, they would suffer death. Not necessarily physical death, but spiritual death in the coming judgment of the new age that Jesus inaugurates. Well, then turning to the reading from Exodus, it depicts a God who is active and involved with creation and the people he formed from Abraham and Abraham's descendants who ended up enslaved in Egypt. And God tells Moses from the burning bush, I have observed the misery of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them and to bring them up out of that land to a good land flowing with milk and honey. I send you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. So God's will, God's intent for the Israelites is that they have life and be free. And that's God's will and intent for all people, to be free and to have life. And we know from our own experience and those of others that life and freedom are frequently not the way of the world. We have experienced that life includes the trio, as we'll say in the Eucharistic prayer, it includes the trio of evil, sin, and death. So where is God and what is God's will? Well, in that class way back in seminary with Will Spong, he recommended a short book called The Will of God, which was written by Leslie Weatherhead, who was a pastor in London during World War II. Uh, The book is based on a series of talks Weatherhead gave on God's will to help people understand how God was involved, what was happening to them during the war. When it comes to the will of God and the matter of suffering, Weatherhead cited two examples in which the question of God's will arises. One in which a doctor grieves the death of his wife who died after an illness. And the doctor says, I must just accept it. It is God's will. Well, Weatherhead points out the fact that the doctor had been working for weeks to provide medical care or treatment to save her life and asked if it was the will of God that she die, was the doctor, by giving her medical care, working against the will of God. And if she recovered, would he not have called her recovery the will of God? And in the second illustration, a woman mourns the loss of her son who died while on a bombing raid over Berlin. And she said, I'm bowing to the inscrutable will of God. Now, Weatherhead asks himself, but was that the will of God? I would have said it was the will of the enemy that the son died, that it was the will of Hitler or the forces of evil we were fighting. So in order to answer those kinds of questions and to clarify what is meant by God's will, Weatherhead proposes in this book that God's will could be understood to include three parts. God's intentional will, God's circumstantial will, and God's ultimate will. God's intentional will, Weatherhead says, is the way in which God pours himself out in goodness. Going back to the Bible, we can see in the opening chapters God doing that. We see in Genesis the God who acts, the God who creates, the God who pours out goodness. In the beginning, God creates humanity in his image and commands them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in doing so, God creates a community 
but shares in God's life. We also know, we also know from Genesis how sin and alienation entered into creation and how within those circumstances of sin and alienation, God chose one nation to reach all nations and then he sent one person, Jesus Christ, to reach all people. And when the circumstances of evil and sin caused Jesus to be killed, God raised him up from the dead. It was God's will, circumstantial will, that Jesus die on the cross. But, let's wait the train to go by. So God's ultimate will. So we had God's intentional will, God's circumstantial will, God's ultimate will. God's ultimate will is the same goal which would have been reached if God's intentional will had not been frustrated. Through Jesus' resurrection, God not only raises up Jesus, he raises up the church as that community which shares in God's divine life as the first fruits of the kind of life that God desires for all people. You know, God's will can be thwarted by the circumstances of human sin, human folly, human error. It can be thwarted, but God's will cannot be defeated. That makes sense? Cannot be defeated in the end. So we can say God has a plan for our lives. We can say that. God has a plan for our lives. God's intentional plan or will for our lives is that we have an abundant life within a community that shares in God's own life. And unfortunately, due to sin and error and sometimes just sadly sheer caprice, that abundant life is not altogether possible. And as a result, there is war, illness, and death. It is God's circumstantial will that this is the case, and it is still a mystery as to why it is so, yet it is not the end. God's ultimate will prevails. From our limited point of view, we might not see how God can create a community of life out of conflict and death, provide relief from suffering, or make goodness out of evil, but our faith in God's faithfulness leads us to believe that God will indeed bring about just such things, just as God brought about goodness and life out of Jesus' death. So God does have a plan for our lives. Life with, now, life with God now, life with God forever. And when from our point of view that plan goes awry, we can have confidence that God is as active in our lives as he was as active in the life of the people of Israel, that he was as active as he was in the life of Jesus Christ. And we may know that however God's plan may be frustrated, God will in the end, God will in the end ultimately prevail. Amen.